to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Okay, welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm joined by my colleague, Paige Labermont. Paige, how are you doing today? Hey, good. How are you, Alex? Great. Our guest today, uh, joining us from lovely San Diego, is uh, Jordan McGillis. Jordan is a Paulson policy analyst at the Manhattan Institute. Before joining MI, he was the deputy director of policy here at the Institute for Energy Research, uh, where his work focused on environmental policy, energy, geopolitics, and urbanism. Jordan, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Alex. Really happy to be back here on Plugged In. Yes. So today we're discussing a new report that you have out with the Manhattan Institute on self-driving vehicles. Uh, To start, why don't you just give us our pitch for self-driving vehicles? What are the problems that uh, this emerging technology uh, purports to solve? Okay. So the first thing that I think must be established when we talk about the, the new possibility of autonomous vehicles proliferating is just how dangerous the status quo is on American roads and on roads across the world. Uh, Some top line figures for you. Over the past three years that we have on record, 2020, 2021, and 2022, more than 40,000 people annually have been killed in the US in vehicular collisions. Uh, So that's 120 plus thousand people in a span of three years, dying on roadways. Um, an additional 3 million people get in collisions that uh, cause them to sustain injuries that send them to the emergency room. So the casualty figures are really, really gruesome. Um, globally, uh, the estimates are harder to really come by because so much of the world um, doesn't have adequate infrastructure for tracking these things. but we can probably assume about a million people across the world die in collisions each year. Um, Why are these collisions happening? There's all sorts of factors, but the factor that comes up more than any other is human error. And I'm going to give you a little snippet from my report that I drew directly from National Highway Traffic Safety Administration studies and surveys. According to uh, the NHTSA, NHTSA, uh, 94% of collisions result from the reason of a critical pre-crash event of human error. Um, And that corroborates a a previous study, which found that human errors and deficiencies were a cause in at least 64% of accidents and were probably causes in about 90 to 93% of accidents investigated. Um, that the latter study that I'm quoting from concluded that human factors were possibly a cause in up to 97.9% of accidents. So the pushback, some of the pushback I've gotten in this report is that I'm overstating the, uh, the role of human error in those death toll and injury toll figures that Um, that I put into my executive summary. Um, So I want to point out that I do later quote from these studies from NHTSA, uh, and they're not saying it's the sole cause, but they are saying the immediate reason for the critical pre-crash event 
is in 94% of cases, a human driver making a mistake. Um, and that's why I think there's an, there's a really pressing importance to autonomous vehicles, because while they will not perfectly uh, solve all of our issues with roadway safety, they will obviously eliminate an, an enormous portion um, of the risk on the roads. They come with their own risks, I'm not denying that, but the overriding argument is human error causes a lot of damage. And if the technology gets to the point of being better than even just the worst tranche of human drivers, it's probably going to have a significant benefit on overall roadway safety. Um, there's another aspect of this argument, which I think is most interesting to uh, probably IER readers and listeners of this podcast, which is that we can derive a lot of those safety benefits without coercing people out of their cars. And instead, we'll be able to get those benefits because by eliminating the labor cost of human drivers in a couple of specific instances, which I'd love to talk about, by eliminating the cost of human drivers, um, meaning their labor, we can bring down the cost of transporting freight and transporting people in uh, shared rides, like ride hails, or some people call them robo-taxis. Um, so by lowering the cost, by eliminating the labor expense, we can actually make the road safer. So it's that combined argument that I make in this paper about safety and the economic efficiency, which redounds itself on safety. Yes. Yeah, so talk a little bit about the technology behind this, because I've had conversations with engineers who are working on this in the automotive industry who say that there's a further distance, they're, they're further away than what some people are kind of leading on with uh, with this technology. And the problem that they described to me is that there's a distinction to be made between uh, what they refer to as easy learning environments and harsh learning environments. So in easy learning environments, every everything's sort of arranged so that the rules can be set up sort of beforehand. Whereas harsh learning environments, uh, you have things that are unpredictable where you have different people making decisions and things. So uh, what I've been told, I guess, is that it's a much bigger problem to set up self-driving vehicles in a situation where you have people driving uh, non-self-driving vehicles and driving and uh, having self-driving driving vehicles on the road at the same time, as opposed to a situation where every, everything is self-driving. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, yeah. T uh, talk about the talk about the technology here. Explain sort of am I on the right track with sort of some of these problems and uh, absolutely yeah. you absolutely are on the right track and that leads me naturally into um, the key distinction that I make in this report which is between what is called level four automation and level five automation the this level system is uh, something that's been promoted by the an international organization called the Society of Automotive Engineers. And in their system of um, categorizing different uh, degrees of autonomous driving, they basically have um, set up what they, what they would say are six different levels. Level zero is there is no automation whatsoever. Most cars that we drive today do have some kind of automation. They have cruise control, they have now cars even have adaptive cruise control, which means that 
maintains a distance between your car and a car in front of you. Um, they have lane keeping technology, which will correct if you're making a little bit of a drift, start falling asleep, that kind of thing. Um, in this report, I focus on the two highest levels of automation, but it's really important to distinguish between these two highest levels. Level four, which is what I am advocating uh, that we facilitate, and level five, which is something that would be really cool to reach, but is not really a near-term prospect. Level five is the utopian vision of a of an autonomous vehicle that you can jump into and it can take you anywhere at any time, regardless of the circumstances. Level four is full automation. You don't need a human driver. Um, the fallback uh, safety response is still automation. It's not human stepping in um, when something gets hairy. But level four is within defined and delimited, um, often geofenced um, domains. So the purpose, as you allude to, is to minimize the edge cases uh, and create the most controlled environment possible so that the automation can um, operate with the, the fewest number of unknown variables possible. The two examples that I bring up in the report that are uh, applications of automation at level four um, are one, autonomous freight trucking, which I envision being very successful on um, limited access highways, connecting uh, freight hubs from the outskirts of one city to the outskirts of another. I'm not envisioning those autonomous trucks driving into town, but rather staying in that relatively controlled environment of an interstate type of highway. In Japan, they're actually building um, some lanes on their uh, heavily trafficked um, expressway that are lanes that are explicitly for autonomous trucks. We don't need that necessarily, but that's the sort of idea is that we're limiting the variables, uh, making an easier environment for the autonomous system to manage. Uh, and then the other one is autonomous ride hailing as it applies to the urban environment. So a highly mapped, um, very well understood driving condition. Yes, the urban environment has uh, a lot of hectic activity, but it also is a much lower speed environment than say winding uh, rural, rural roads, um, that kind of thing. So I fully agree with the engineers you've talked to that suggest um, that there are some technological barriers, which is why what I am so vocal about here is the gains that we can achieve, both in terms of safety and efficiency, just by opening some doors to these applications of level four automation, autonomous ride hailing within cities, a couple of them in the US already have this, and then autonomous freight trucking. On the autonomous ride hailing point, just to clue listeners into to where the state of play is, we have uh, two US cities that have commercially available um, autonomous ride hailing as we speak here in early August, 2023. One of them is Phoenix and the other is San Francisco. Um, Los Angeles, Houston, Dallas, they're going to have this before long. There, there might even be by the time listeners are uh, hearing this, some other cities that are commercially offering this. But in um, San Francisco uh, and Phoenix, you've got a couple of companies in operation um, that, again, this is within a very delimited, defined geographic area, very well mapped city streets and uh, connecting 
in Phoenix to the airport, which I think is a fantastic idea. Yeah, effectively, it's a private shuttle that is taking people from um, Phoenix Sky Harbor, as they call it, to downtown Phoenix. And the trucks, um, it's not yet fully rolled out, but there are there's a company called Aurora that has some autonomous freight hubs that they've constructed in Texas, and they're going to uh, start freight runs with no driver aboard um, in 2024 between the outskirts of Dallas and the outskirts of Houston. So we are right at the precipice of this. And in fact, it's already an option, again, within that defined domain, um, which we call level four. In the paper, you talk a bit about kind of the difference between um, the level of regulation preventing this from happening in California versus allowing it to happen more effectively in Texas. Could you go into that a little bit? Yes. Um, as I went through my research and uh, was attempting to, to form some policy recommendations based on what I was encountering, uh, consistently what I was hearing from people within um, the scholarly community and then also within the, the industry is that it's really state policy um, where the, the rubber hits the proverbial road uh, because states are the licensing bodies um, for drivers and they own the infrastructure for the most part. Um, so we do have this great contrast as has become the case in a variety of different policy areas between uh, what, I, what I think we would all agree or most of us would agree are our two most important um, states, California and Texas. Some of my Manhattan-based colleagues might disagree with that, but California and Texas are where a lot of the cultural and political and economic energy is right now. And they're also at the forefront of autonomous vehicles in different ways. Um, because California is the world's uh, leading technology hub, it has that natural built-in advantage of having um, companies that are based there that want to roll out the technology. Um, and so that's why we've seen that in San Francisco with uh, companies named Cruise and Waymo operating the autonomous ride hails. It's really not because of anything San Francisco has done politically. Um, they're no better and probably a bit worse than most cities in, in many ways, but uh, it's a, a, an environment that is um, most convenient for those companies. What we have not seen, though, is California uh, step out at the front of the charge for autonomous freight trucking. And the reason does have to do with politics here. Um, California's legislature is in, I don't want to overstate this, but it is significantly influenced by um, the California labor movement, which has come out vocally against uh, the the prospect of autonomous trucks and um, the the Teamsters and their allies in the legislature have worked together to come up with some pretty harsh restrictions on the ability to test um, autonomous trucks in the state. The contrast is Texas. And what Texas has done is create a hub within their political infrastructure, which is called the Connected and Autonomous Vehicle um, Office in the state government. And this serves as kind of a clearinghouse for different disputes that may arise. Um, and the, the best idea that Texas has had is to um, effectively license what are called autonomous driving systems 
as if they were human drivers. So provided that the system meets a basic standard, it is given the liberty to, to operate on the roads and the company that owns the vehicle or owns the, the um, autonomous driving system is then held accountable. Uh, but there, it's much, there's much more liberty for those companies um, to go out and test these things. And as I said earlier, to actually commercially offer autonomous trucking as is going to happen in 2024 if, if everything works out for Aurora. Um, so it is the case that autonomous trucking is not yet being done. And I don't want to um, suggest that it is entirely because of policy that this hasn't rolled out yet. Um, I think on the other, on I think the the actual case is that companies are showing proper prudence. They're doing um, all that they can to ensure safety for for roadway users and of course for um, their own uh, capital investments. They don't want to send these um, multi hundred thousand dollar trucks down the down the highway and have them careen off and and lose everything. So they're doing everything they can to make sure that this technology is um, safe enough for roadway standards before they take the drivers out of the cabs and, and let them operate. But when they do that, when they get the drivers out, the efficiency gains in trucking are, are going to be um, quite valuable um, in terms of savings across our economy. The reason is that there are the physical limitations that uh, truck drivers face that have then demanded um, certain regulatory responses, such as compelled driver rest periods um, and various other things like that. You're going to be able to see trucks operate at a much higher um, efficiency level in terms of their time than they can now uh, because they'll be able to operate without um, that need for human rest. Uh, some people might say, well, we have team driving where you've got a couple of people jumping into the cab to take the truck when it gets to um, different points of that 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 limit on how long one person can be behind the wheel. But again, that's back to the labor cost thing. Um, we're paying people a lot of money to operate these trucks. And once the the price of the technology is brought down by economies of scale, we're going to be saving on on multiple different axes here, both the labor, the time efficiency, and then the safety that I mentioned earlier. Truck drivers are professionals and um, are are not a, a major risk on our roadways, but nevertheless, um, there are about 5,000 deaths that are occurring in the US annually that do result from collisions with uh, heavy trucks. And about half of those are attributed to errors of human drivers. So the truck point for me is mostly about economic efficiency, but there's even a safety aspect on that side of things. Gotcha. Um, so I want to give you a chance to lay out sort of the policy proposals that you summarize at the end of the piece. But before we do that, um, I do want to sort of challenge maybe some of the the um, the reasons for adoption of self-driving vehicles. And I'm not somebody who's you, you know me, I'm not somebody who's skeptical of uh, of new technology inherently, but I do think that there are some costs that come along with this that we should make maybe a little bit more apparent. So one criticism I could see is that, um, so for me personally, when I moved to Washington, D.C., I 
didn't know how to get around, obviously, right? So I used Google Maps to go everywhere. And after living here for a couple of years, I realized I had no idea how to get around anywhere. So I stopped doing that. Um, so what I sort of came to realize is that, you know, one of the costs of using new technology like Google Maps is that um, you lose a sense of sort of a working knowledge of the city, right? So I could see with self-driving vehicles, this being a really big problem, right? It's kind of amp amplifying that issue quite a bit. Um, so for just a personal person trying to make a decision about whether or not they want to adopt this technology, you could see why somebody might say, well, yeah, self-driving vehicles are uh, neat and efficient and stuff, but I kind of value, you know, being able to know how to get around and having sort of a, a, a working knowledge of the world. What would your response be to, be to that? That's an interesting critique, Alex. I actually don't think I've heard that uh, application of kind of the cost of technology made here to the AVs. I think there's something to it. And so what I would emphasize is that I advocate for transportation pluralism. I'm not suggesting that we make this the only option or uh, try to compel people to it, but that we create avenues for this technology to thrive for people that it appeals to. Um, now, you could say that, well, for every person that jumps into an autonomous vehicle, that's one less person who's uh, physically aware of their surroundings. You, Yes, that's true, but you could say that about every single uh, you know, smartphone as well. Um, and you plausibly can make that case, but I think it's something for individuals to them for themselves to evaluate um, with respect to whether it's a, a net positive or, or net negative um, for them. Something that, that is interesting as we think about the experience of riding in the autonomous vehicle is what people would do with that time uh, relative to their the current baseline of um, driving, we'll just say to work. You know, you drive to work and you're somewhat focused on your surroundings. You're probably listening to the radio or, or Spotify or a podcast these days. Um, your attention is kind of divided. You're not doing anything super well. Um, I think that the autonomous vehicle experience, much like simply the experience of taking a ride hail or a taxi, will let you apply your mind to, to one thing with more focus. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a super productive task, but maybe you want to play, I don't know, a video game in the backseat. I'm not a video game person, but that's time that you probably would find well spent relative to so to sort of observing your surroundings, but sort of listening to something. Um, and that again gets to the, the biggest issue with the human driving norm, which is distraction. So when, we're, when we are driving around, we rarely are fully immersed in, uh, in our surroundings. We're usually partially immersed, but we're also listening to something and um, surreptitiously glancing down at our phones when we get to traffic signals. Um, so I think that this creates a new opportunity for people who uh, don't really find that particularly enriching. Um, I'm not saying that everyone needs to adopt it anytime soon. I really appreciate that view of like people making the choice to do the thing that they want to do. Um, and what immediately came to my mind, Alex, when you made that distinction was that the vast majority of the American public has no idea how to ride a horse anymore, even though that was that used to be like the main means of transportation for people. But people who do ride horses do it really well and do it like out of a degree of personal enjoyment for the activity, relationship 
with the animal, what they enjoy about it. And they, they get a lot of enjoyment out of it and have a lot of expertise in it. And I think that there are even, regardless of how far uh, autonomous vehicles progress, there will always be people for whom driving is like that, for whom driving is, it's an activity and it's, uh, you know, an understanding of the machine and how it functions and a relationship with it. Um, and I think for those people, traditional cars will always hold a certain ambiance and interest, and they will always do something with that. Uh, but I think for the vast majority of the American public, a car is a way to get from point A to point B, and they don't necessarily care how that happens or really want to be involved in the process. I know I personally want as little involvement with my car as possible. I want to understand it as little as I can and ideally not have to do much with it. Um, and so I think the, the ability to choose whether you want to be a connoisseur of a thing or just a, a, a user by necessity is really important. And I think, I think it's important that as the technology develops, it doesn't preclude the use by the connoisseur who wants to do it, you know, for the pleasure of the thing, but still allows the person who just wants to not have to deal with it to, uh, you know, gain all of the benefits of the new technology. Um, and I would on that that point, Paige, about the the connoisseurs. Um, our culture and our built environment are structured largely around cars, and they're a big part of a lot of Americans' uh, enjoyment and even identity these days. Um, and I don't see anything terribly wrong with that. Um, but it's it does create some interesting questions here with AVs. And, and when I think like about a very radical future where autonomous vehicles become um, a cost-effective choice for the average person, I think that there could be, this is a, a reasonable conservative critique, I think there could be some undue pressure uh, to get people out of their cars. And when I envision that scenario, I can actually foresee a circumstance in which a significant portion of the American Republic uh, is so wedded to their own cars that we have something like constitutional amendments that like reify the right to the use of your own car in, I don't want to be too um, cavalier with this, but I would compare it in, in some ways to the second amendment. Uh, and I could, I could see that emerging 50 years from now, um, where there is a major cultural battle around the liberty to have your own car. Yeah, I think I think that that's a fascinating scenario that very well could arise. Um, and I think, but I think that this early stages technology stuff is not that. <laughs> uh, and I think it's yep. important to make that distinction for people, like um, to cut off the beginnings of the development of a, a potentially incredibly useful technology out of fears of what government will do with that technology 30, 40, 50 years from now is to cut yourself off at the ankles. Like you've got to see where the thing's going to develop before you try to block potential pathways that haven't yet arisen. Yeah, so again, on the, the two applications that I'm talking about here, they are really marginal. They're not fundamental to how people and goods are going to get around. It'll be a very gradual adoption of the autonomous freight trucking. And then the autonomous ride hailing is just like one more option in the urban arena of how to get around. Again, I like the term transportation pluralism. Um, there's this McKinsey study, it came out last year, 2022, that indicates we could see ride hailing fares cut in half 
by the end of this decade as a result of um, autonomous driving systems eliminating the, the cost of paying the driver. And I think that is something that the three of us and most of our listeners would find really nice. If I could get an Uber that costs half as much, uh, I'd be able to get around more efficiently. I'd be able to um, use the service more. And I think most importantly, um, there would be less of an incentive on say a Friday night when I've had a drink or two to get behind the wheel of my own vehicle if I know I've got an affordable option that can get me from where I am to where I need to be. Uh, and that's what I think is the the important point to stress that we're talking about like marginal additions to the panoply of transportation options that when when cost effective will reduce roadway risk. That's how I frame this. Yeah, I think those are all excellent responses. The, the, the focus on consumer choice, I think, is obviously important. And you guys both hit on that. Um, so one other objection that I could foresee from the sort of development of this would be um, so these self-driving vehicles and I would say electric vehicles to, well, really any, any new car, uh, has a lot of data, shares a lot of data, self-driving vehicles, especially given the fact that we have a sort of entanglement of institutions when it comes to transportation, where we have public roadways with private technology being deployed on them, you're sort of inherently going to get an entanglement between public and private that's going on there. So I think that it's reasonable for people who are concerned about privacy concerns uh, to raise an objection. Well, I'm worried about, you know, where is all my data going with this? Uh, what would your response be to that sort of objection? It's not a crazy objection. Um, it ties in with some of the, the earlier conversation we were having about uh, U.S. culture, we do have a very libertarian, don't step on me um, mindset. And I'll again stress pluralism. I don't want to force anyone to get into an autonomous vehicle. I personally don't put those concerns at the forefront of my worldview, and I'm eager to get the benefits um, from this technology. I don't want to force anyone to use it that doesn't want to. Um, and I don't want to, I also wouldn't, I, I don't want to be glib about it. Uh, the way some people will respond to that critique and say, well, you have a smartphone in your pocket that's tracking you all the time. Um, and people are concerned about that. And it's reasonable, not my concern personally, but I see where people are coming from and want to leave them free to utilize different forms of transportation uh, and maintain their their right to privacy as they see fit. Yeah, I've been reading a little bit about uh, people who've made proposals for like a digital Fourth Amendment type thing, and um, okay. I would, if people are sort of interested in in that, I would I would direct them uh, towards uh, that sort of literature. It's kind of interesting debate going on there. Yes, uh, I would say I want to say one more thing on the these sort of tech concerns. There is another reasonable tech concern, and it's cybersecurity. Um, can these cars be hacked? Well, yes, just about anything can be hacked. Um, and that's something we need to be, we need to have top minds addressing just as they do for things like our banking system and things like our uh, electricity infrastructure and things like our military's weapon systems. Cybersecurity is incredibly important. Um, and I think that competition in the marketplace for autonomous vehicles 
is what's going to give us the best possible cybersecurity. Companies proving to consumers that they're doing it the right way and can keep you safe um, is, is going to be our best path forward. Okay, so you've assuaged my concerns with uh, self-driving vehicles. What are some other things that uh, have come up uh, that uh, I guess other people have brought to your attention since you've released this report or um, in sort of the preparations of, of it that you think is worth discussing? Uh, one of my colleagues, Rafael Mangual, uh, is a very um, astute thinker on public safety and criminal justice and, and public disorder questions. Um, that's one of the, the bailiwicks of the Manhattan Institute. And he brought a criticism to me that I had thought about um, and was hoping nobody would bring up, but he did immediately. And it's that people may not be safe as they elect to enter an autonomous vehicle. If you imagine a scenario now in a city like New York, you're getting onto public transit, there is some crime, but you've got the bus driver there. You've got the driver of the subway train at the front there near you. If you're getting into an autonomous vehicle late at night, there may not be anyone around to help if you feel you're in danger. Um, and I think that's a, a plausible concern. Um, what I'm One of the things I'm most bullish about are shared shuttle vehicles where um, you'll get in and a few other people will get in and this thing will be dynamically routed uh, to get you to your shared destinations. Now we're opening up this possibility where you need to make a judgment call of is that guy standing next to me a paying customer or someone who's you know trying to abduct my child? Um, this is a some people may say paranoid concern, but from an urbanist perspective, the the power of what we call eyes on the street is really valuable, and the bus driver or the the driver of the train serves as that community figure who provides a modicum of order without that person there may be some disorder and that's thus some reluctance to adopt the technology um that's a problem i don't really have a solution for and uh, the only solution i can really come up with for it completely cuts against um the things you brought up earlier alex which is that i would put a lot of cameras inside of these cars uh so that someone in some command center is able to be aware of what's happening um, in each of the, the vehicles that are trundling about town. Um, I would say the the something we haven't mentioned is Tesla, and uh, it has to be mentioned. You can't have the conversation about autonomous vehicles without mentioning Tesla. Tesla is doing this differently than the approach I discussed in the report. They are rolling out software updates with new autonomous features um, seemingly each year, and that's gotten them into trouble. It They may be out over their skis a little bit in advertising certain full self-driving claims. Um, I think they're, they are dangerously uh, creating ambiguity around full self-driving versus high-level but non-full self-driving technologies. Um, so I'm not getting behind Tesla uh, full-throatedly in this report. I'm focusing on um, these level four applications that are fleet owned, I think that creates another layer of accountability um, and confidence for the public. Uh, so Tesla will continue to be um, going about its its approach to innovation. I hope they're successful. It would be really cool if um, we're able to have personally owned autonomous cars in the future. Um, I hope that they're they're able to roll roll out these updates 
in a way that that isn't creating too much disruption and confusion in the minds of the owners. Yeah, my um, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, my understanding is actually, so the outgoing CFO of Tesla on what was probably their earnings call this morning, or maybe he was on a, a TV show. I don't know. I just saw the headline. The headline was uh, that um, he was walking back some of the uh, sort of hype that Tesla's been uh, been been doing with their self-driving tech. So, um, did, did that contribute to his departure? I just saw the headline yesterday yeah. and yeah. look into it. You know, I'm not sure. And, you know, so many things could be going on there. He's the outgoing CFO, right? So, you, you mm -hmm. know, who, who knows really what's going time, on? There, time for the air, airing of dirty laundry. Right, yeah. Um, but Well, uh, hopefully, hopefully yeah. we'll get some interesting insights into the technology now that he's on the outside. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then the the last, I want to bring up one more critique. This is a fascinating argument. And um, it really would incite some interesting uh, discourse within American politics. And it is actually an extrapolation I'm making um, based on something that wasn't specifically written about autonomous vehicles, or rather about automation in the economy generally. And it comes from the economist Lant Pritchett, who is an, an eminent thinker on um, development and how countries can get wealthier and how uh, different regions have um, achieved wealth or accelerated their economic output in different ways. Lant Pritchett says that the push for automation in our industrial sector is actually completely uneconomical and that what would be the economical response to some of the challenges we have with labor costs would simply be to have a lot more people in the labor market via increasing immigration. Um, I'm not sure he would you would describe him as an advocate for any particular policy. He's simply pointing out that the the way to reduce the cost of producing, let's say, semiconductors in the United States or you know other forms of advanced manufacturing, the way to do it um, is not to automate these facilities with high capital costs, but rather to lower labor costs by getting people that are willing to work for less. That same argument uh, can be applied to the autonomous freight scenario I'm describing and to the autonomous ride hailing. Um, again, the McKinsey number was a 50% or more drop. I think they said it could be as much as a 60% drop in fares um, that could come from automation. And that's because uh, the the overwhelming amount of the money you're paying to Uber right now goes to the driver. It's, set, it's somewhere between 70 and 80%. We could make that uh, that number lower if people were willing to drive for less. Same thing applies with autonomous trucks. And there are, you know, maybe a billion people out there that will be willing to move, will be willing to move to the developed world from poorer countries to do these sorts of things, become truck drivers, become Uber drivers. So it, it he's he makes a pretty compelling point that if we want to bring costs down, the most uh, the lowest hanging fruit would be to lower the the cost of labor directly. As I said, though, that sets off. A political firestorm in the U.S. We have incendiary politics around immigration, and um, the the same sorts of political impulses that uh, oppose automation in California trucking um, would also oppose bringing in 
competing labor. So it's not really a politically viable idea, but it does disrupt some of my thinking um, because I am a techno maximalist and think of it as the, the best way to accelerate progress and the human standard of living. Um, sometimes technology simply is costlier though than other political arrangements um, like bringing in lower labor costs directly. I think that's a situation where it could definitely be both. Like you can you can do either thing and see which one works. Maybe one factory wants you know to hire more people more cheaply and another one wants to have its goods delivered via automation. I think I think that both things can exist. I don't know that they absolutely limit each other. Certainly. And his point is that the it just if we had a free global labor market, these technological capital investments would not pencil out uh, and that they only pencil out because we've raised the cost of labor artificially. It's kind of like uh, a favorite IER topic, think about the carbon tax, when, you know, does a certain form of electricity generation pencil out with no carbon tax? Uh, it, it may not, but if you artificially raise the cost of producing electricity from coal and natural gas, now this other form of lower carbon um, generation does pencil out. So it's that same sort of idea that if you if you do artificially increase the cost, it makes the other thing look more appealing. And he says that's what's happening here. We've artificially raised the cost of labor. Effectively, we've, we've like have a labor cartel, um, and that makes the alternative of technology look better by comparison. But really, we should just be lowering those labor costs. Gotcha. Okay, so let's move away from uh, what we might think of as uh, some potential downsides of things. And, uh, you know, like, like I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm sold that as long as people are free to choose uh, this technology, that we should let people uh, give it a go. So uh, you outline um, some policy proposals for, I believe, the national, state, and sort of local level, right, um, at, at the end of your paper. Um, do you want to talk through uh, what you see is uh, what, what, what we should do policy-wise uh, to help uh, jurisdictions uh, who are interested in adopting this? In the report, I talk about the state, the federal, and the local. And I think that there are things that can happen across uh, all those domains at the state level. I recommend that Texas model of um, creating a, a hub to serve as a clearinghouse for the technology um, and then licensing the systems at the local level, I think there are small marginal changes you can make regarding road use and curb space allocation so that autonomous vehicles um, can operate in the same places that human-driven taxis and things like that can operate. Um, and then at the federal level, there's one really big thing that needs to happen is that we need to change our status quo on exemptions for the federal motor vehicle safety standards. Currently, uh, to operate a vehicle that doesn't have a steering wheel or a, a rear view mirror, you have to apply for an exemption. Um, and if you get that and you, want, you build this autonomous vehicle, you can produce 2,500 of those vehicles per year. We need to change that number, make it a lot higher or eliminate the cap altogether so you can generate economies of scale. And I think that would really help um, this industry just to, to have the opportunity to, to build itself up if the market is there for it. So one big hurdle for uh, autonomous trucks is opposition from what I think can reasonably called, be called the populist right. Um, a focal point of this 
uh, political wing of our of our discourse is Tucker Carlson. And in 2018, he explicitly said he would do everything in his power to slow the rollout of autonomous trucks um, if he were in a position of political influence. His reasoning is that truck driving is a crucial, stable job for uh, American men who don't have college degrees. And that if these jobs go away, uh, you've taken an avenue to success um, away from a, a population that seems to be having a lot of um, their, their routes to success foreclosed these days. Uh, so this definitely fits into the, the wider um, cultural conversation about the decline in blue collar jobs, decline in manufacturing. Um, and there's a lot that can be said about the veracity of uh, the claims about manufacturing's decline. Um, but he makes he makes some good points. He says that in um, all 50 states, and I actually haven't verified this, but it, it rings true. In all 50 states, the most commonly held job for non-college educated men is driving a truck. Um, and it seems reasonable that there could be some negative social repercussions of those jobs disappearing. So how would I respond to that as somebody who is bullish about autonomous trucking? Um, the first thing that I would say is that we need to look at jobs differently. The three of us are policy analysts. We write, we talk, we schedule meetings, we uh, you know, pitch articles to publications. There's all these different things that we do in our job. And that aggregation, that bundle of things we do is what we think of as, as our, uh, what we do for a living. Um, what artificial intelligence can do is automate portions of jobs. So it's disaggregating the bundle of activities that we currently think of as constituting uh, our vocation. Um, so instead of uh, scheduling this meeting between the three of us for this Zoom call to record this podcast, an AI could do that for us as, as it gets better and we incorporate it into our, um, into our mode of work. Uh, I've been using GPT-4 and the Bing GPT integration to help me with my research. And it's made a big difference. Um, just from this time last year to now, I've, I sense that I'm able to get to important information faster. Um, I don't have my own personal research assistant, but we have uh, collegiate associates at the Manhattan Institute that um, serve the needs of, of different scholars. And uh, though that sort of role of research assistant is no longer um, as needed for what I'm doing because these different tasks have been uh, you know, potentially taken under the umbrella of AI. It doesn't mean there isn't a collegiate associate. It actually means that collegiate associates time is freed up to do other things. And my time is freed up to work on the writing or constructing the argument um, or spending time talking while it's easier and quicker for me to get um, through that tedious labor of finding sources. The same sort of logic applies in other industries, including, I would say, the industry of moving freight. So I don't think it is in any way, shape, or form the case that 
these jobs are going to disappear. It's that aspects of the job are going to be reallocated to an artificial intelligence driven system. And that's what automated driving systems are. They're utilizing AI in place of the human who is assessing the road and then controlling the vehicle. But there's all sorts of the truck driving job and the, the work in the freight industry that are more than the long haul portion of a route. That's the part that can be automated. We can let a truck run from a, a hub outside of Dallas to a hub outside of Houston, but getting the freight onto that truck, getting it to the customer, interacting with the customer, um, navigating through complicated back alleys, those are the sorts of things that AI and auto autonomous vehicles are nowhere near being able to handle. Um, I do think that like small cars can navigate pretty well, but an 18 wheeler is not going to be uh, going into um, these, these complicated back alleys where loading docks are. Uh, so that's where opportunities will actually probably um, see a boom. We're going to see greater economic efficiency in long haul freight, which means more trade, more you know, interregional trade and more jobs getting the stuff to where it needs to go. But that job won't necessarily be sitting behind the wheel for 11 straight hours between uh, Dallas and Atlanta. Let's let the, the autonomous driving system do that part and have a larger labor pool available as we see a, a boom in commercial activity that this um, promotes. So just as it's enhancing, just as the AI has enabled me to do my research and writing faster, I think it can enable the industry of moving freight to do things more efficiently. And that creates a lot of opportunities. Uh, it doesn't take them away. Moreover, from a, a conservative perspective, the jobs that this facilitates, those jobs that are uh, in the um, kind of at the nexus of the long haul portion, and then where the freight is going, those jobs are going to be closer to home. So they're not going to take dad away from the family for two straight weeks as he makes a run you know, up the Great Plains and back. Um, it's going to have certain social benefits that I think are really underappreciated um, from the populist right, who, who makes this case about social stability, um, but isn't really seeing how economic productivity can in itself enhance social stability by letting people focus on the parts of jobs that um, are uh, enabling them to be closer to home or you know, to do things that are um, more interactive, less isolating. Uh, the long haul portion is the easiest portion to automate. And it's also the most costly to an individual who is a truck driver in terms of their health and their social well-being. Um, going down a bit of a, a uh, social conservative rabbit hole there, but that's the terrain some of these conversations are, are being fought over. And I think that they're a little bit off. So um, I wanna challenge that. Great, Jordan. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you think is important for our listeners to know? I could go all day. Let's talk about the progressive case against ABs now. Do it. Um, so the progressive case sometimes involves the labor aspects. We see that in California with the um, intermingling of the California legislature and the Teamsters. But there's like this progressive urbanist case against AVs as well. Um, as you guys know, uh, I am into micro mobility. I like riding bikes. I like walking. I like taking scooters. Um, and urbanists like myself will sometimes come down against AVs 
because they see them as entrenching car culture. We talked about how AVs could be used to force people out of their cars. On the other side of the spectrum, the, the, a lot of progressives see this as a way for cars to um, just entrench their hegemony on our roadways and that we're going to have too much high-speed traffic. It's going to be, there's going to be an even stronger incentive for people to get into large vehicles and uh, it's going to crowd out micromobility and street life and these sorts of things. My argument there is that we go back to that first premise that we talked about in a conversation, the existing, the actually existing status quo of our streets is one of quite eminent danger every day because of human distraction, fatigue, uh, inability to control the vehicle. A lot of roadway deaths do happen on rural highways and places like that, but just within our big cities, if you look at the top five cities in the United States, by population, New York, LA, Chicago, Houston, Phoenix, more than a thousand people, uh, if you add those up together, are dying each year in collision. So even if we eliminate all rural considerations here and just focus on cities, there are a lot of people killed from uh, motor vehicles. So how can we target uh, those fatalities? We can hopefully bring them down by adding this option um, of the autonomous ride hailing, which will lower the cost lower the friction of choosing a safe way to get around, um, particularly when people are under the influence of alcohol, which I think is one of the one of the worst social plagues that, that faces us. Um, so I think that there's a clear safety case. And then moreover, I think that the more autonomous vehicles proliferate, the more we can orient our cities away from some of the forgiving designs that we create for human drivers um, I'm not an expert in the, the domain of uh, traffic engineering, um, but I would point people to the organization called Strong Towns, which talks a lot about how um, people are almost enticed to drive dangerously by the way we design roads. And there's this interaction between design and behavior. We can make our designs less forgiving to errant human drivers as autonomous vehicles proliferate, and that creates more space uh, for other forms of transportation. You don't need to allocate a super wide lane to a car if more and more cars are really good at maintaining safe speeds and keeping to um, keep their lane uh, more adherently. Further point, um, Sorry. the in addition to this, the street design claim, there's also this argument that uh, autonomous vehicles will, particularly the autonomous ride hail, will defeat mass transit. If that happens, so be it. I'm not wedded to mass transit. Um, but I'm completely on board think, now. I'm completely on board. Yeah, <laughs> that, that will be a selling point for the IER audience. Um, but actually, autonomous technology and transit can go hand in hand. Um, this is a labor cost question. We Do we need to continue paying bus drivers in perpetuity to navigate the city streets? If we can uh, have an autonomous driving system doing this for a lower cost, it makes the whole enterprise more efficient um, and will, will help, it, help it to operate and, and uh, enable it to be even better as we incorporate things like dynamic routing so I'm quite optimistic about the use of autonomous driving systems and 
small scale transit versus like big trains and rapid bus transit. What I love to point to is the example of the public light bus system in Hong Kong. There are these little vans um, and they're packed with people. They put like, it's, it's basically the size of like a Ford Econo van holds like 20 people or so. Um, they don't need to be so tightly packed and you know, certain preferences uh, in the market will determine how many people are in them. But the point is this light bus system um, is small scale transit and they even have routes that are not fixed. They'll kind of go where you need to go. If we can get an autonomous shuttle that has that same you know, sort of number of people, maybe two to 12, somewhere in that ballpark, we can even further reduce the cost of getting around town. Um, and we can have dynamic routing based on uh, the emerging technology that, that GPS and various other systems give to us. Um, and that will save money for transit agencies. They're, they're not going to need to um, put so much money into the fixed cost of rail, uh, whether it's above or below ground. So dynamically routed buses, whether public or private, um, I think are a perfect combination of uh, lowering the cost by pooling um, the the expense of going somewhere uh, and and utilizing this new technology to 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 do it in a safe and efficient way. It's great, Jordan. Uh, anything else? There's this issue of zombie cars which is the fear that people have that when cars are autonomous, you won't need to park it and it'll just like do circles around your office all day long, waiting for you to uh, come out from work. Um, I know some of some of uh, my former colleagues, your colleagues at IER um, drive from Virginia or Maryland each day, uh, or maybe they're coming in, you know, one or two times a week, but there's a, there's a garage that they pay for to use under the building. If you have an autonomous vehicle, why pay for that autonomous vehicle to park while you're at work? It can just do whatever to move around and avoid that cost. If 20,000 commuters into DC are doing that, you might face some, some serious traffic uptick as a result of having uh, these cars with literally no one in them just milling about uh, in a purposeless fashion. So how do you manage that? Well, this is where... Um, I, I would run into some, some counter arguments from, uh, from some people at IER, but I advocate for congestion pricing. I think that we do need to put a price on the use of this shared resource of public road space. And the autonomous vehicles uh, create even more reason to do so. I think it makes sense even without them um, to begin uh, to use the price mechanism to moderate traffic flows and uh, put some accountability on how we're using that shared space. But that zombie car problem makes it even more of an imperative. It's interesting. I've never thought of congestion pricing in the terms of having to solve that exact problem. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, there, I do worry about the interaction of all those things then where you have the autonomous vehicles, you have the the interaction between public and private roads, um, or public roads, private technology, and then you have a system of congestion pricing. 
And above all this, you have probably a bureaucracy that's managing the congestion pricing with the ability to manipulate the or have access to the information that is coming in. So I think that I am back on the we need some sort of Fourth Amendment type uh, thing to protect people's privacy with this stuff. I I, 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 I do because there, there's just such a danger there in terms of uh, ability to sort of uh, people to be people to be able to uh, control things that uh, it, it does worry me. I, I know it sounds a little. I don't know, like uh, over, it probably sounds like, you know, kind of a slippery slope kind of argument, and maybe it is a little bit, but, um, you know, it, it, it's I something that I would worry about. I think about. it's useful. I think it's useful to have those considerations in in the discourse, certainly, and and to get the pushback that you hinted at of the knowledge problem. How do you form a, how do you just carte blanche create a price for using the road? Uh, beyond my area of expertise, so there's you know different ways we could do it. I mentioned in the paper with the curb space that there could be a bidding process where autonomous uh, autonomous driving um, companies that are offering ride hailing or any other form of of uh, transportation network carrier, say just a a regular taxi company or a shuttle company or Uber or Lyft that that still uses human drivers, they could bid to use. The curb space. So there is an aspect of a price being formed by uh, their the the market's assessment of the value of that space. Um, but yeah, the problem of public ownership of the roads is one we are we cannot escape, uh, and it, it will always create these thorny issues of decision making and public choice and and everything that you're such an expert at uh, at highlighting. So I will... on this zombie cars thing. Oh, yes, let's talk zombie cars. I'm a little bit dubious about how that would actually come about because cars either take gasoline or or electric vehicles, Mm -hmm. almost in all cases. And a gas car, it's going to be more expensive to have a car just drive around aimlessly in the city for eight hours than to pay 10 or 15 bucks to park it. Plus, you're going to be out of gas when you get your car back. And with an EV... I don't know what EV can go eight hours straight in the city and have enough left to get you home. It, it seems like it would be a, like an internal resource allocation problem that would almost solve itself because wouldn't it be either cheaper for the user to pay to park the car or to send the car back somewhere where it is cheaper free to park to come retrieve them later than to have it just mill around slowly in traffic using energy or gas i actually disagree quite strongly with an implicit aspect of of that uh challenge um we hear this a lot when congestion pricing or uh tolls are proposed that drivers of cars are already paying for the use of the resource through the the uh the tax on gasoline and and that sort of thing um, but what, what I think ultimately would happen in this urban calculation, um, is that the price of the use of the, of the lot, uh, is quite possibly higher. 
And as long as it's a little bit higher, it doesn't need to be way higher, then it's cheaper for you to just drive the car around. And because there is no explicit price on the use of that common pool resource, um, you've got a classic tragedy of the commons of it puttering around uh, inexhaustibly. You suggest that they would run out of fuel, but with the regenerative braking on EVs, I don't really think that would be the case. Even with a, a um, internal combustion engine vehicle, um, we could we could do an experiment here and try to to price this out. But uh, with EVs in particular, they're actually more efficient in the stop and go because of the regenerative braking. So it's kind of the opposite of the the ICE vehicle, which is at its best on the open road. Uh, so I believe the calculation would clearly come down in favor in almost all cases of just letting your vehicle drive around, um, if not for some additional price on that common pool resource. Uh, I guess you could then argue though that, well, won't that bring down the cost of parking? And so it would entice people to do that. Arguably, I guess it could have some interactive effect there. Um, but I don't think it's credible to, to claim that we already have a moderating effect in place um, on the use of the road. I think it needs to be explicit and tied to its actual use, not just the fuel. In the case of the EVs, it pretty clearly does favor um, driving it around uh, because land is scarce in, um, in a place like Washington, D.C. What's the cost, like $20 a day for a lot? Yeah. I think that's pretty standard. There's there's no way that driving your EV around at low speeds would cost that much in, in electricity. But, okay, kind of weird hypothetical. But so most parking garages are kind of constrained size-wise by it being easy enough for like a human driver to get through it in a timely manner and then walk themselves out of it. So, you know, there's only so many floors one can really be and parking spaces have to be a certain width and has to be big enough lanes, et cetera. Couldn't hypothetically some sort of central in the city gigantic parking garage arise that was cheaper because it could utilize more economies of scale um, and wouldn't have to be in any way human friendly. It was just a place that the car goes to park itself. That's a beautiful market opportunity. Let's start a company right now. I just feel like the market would solve the problem itself. Like there probably would be like a really weird year where it happened and it was a problem. But I feel like someone would be like, huh, what if I created somewhere to, for everyone to very cheaply park all of these cars? And like, I, th I think that's something a, would just arise. Like, I don't know that we need to solve that problem. I think that's a great idea. I'd love to, I'd love to see that, that tried. And if the result is that it's less costly to use the road because it's actually not as scarce as we previously thought, that's a good thing. Yeah. So I'm not opposed to it. I just want to avoid having an unpriced common resource. Uh, and I think that your idea should naturally spring up alongside um, this particular policy for the public space. But yeah, utilizing private space in new creative ways can definitely happen um, as we, as autonomous vehicles are more viable. And, and I think one thing I'd say is like depth. You can just go really, really low underground uh, and it can be pitch black um, versus having, it probably doesn't need to be ventilated properly. Um, so there's all sorts of things you can do with basically robots uh, that you can't do before.
Yeah, and you can just create a much less safe building than you usually would have to create, right? Like, it, you, could, you could make a much larger parking garage that was very reasonably safe, but not keep humans alive safe, mm -hmm. um, that I think could, you know, create a lot of different cost constraints than a people have to walk in and out of this building parking garage. Just like, oh, like you said, ventilation, all sorts of things that people need that cars don't. Totally agree. Yep. Um, a related point is that autonomous technology is also being used for um, small scale urban deliveries like groceries and food from fat, like fast food joints. Um, and these don't need to have really any internal safety standard. They can just be metal boxes that go really slow uh, because you don't have to protect people inside of them. Um, so it's the same sort of idea when you're taking the human out of the uh, machine, you can do different things regarding safety standards, including storage, and then including um, whether a the vehicle itself can withstand a lot of force. If there's not a person in it, it's just a couple of burgers. The standard for with you know being able to absorb force can be much lower. I would just make a point on the uh, well, here's maybe the overly optimistic libertarian in me uh, on the the public roads being a a given forever point. Um, it's hard to imagine private roads. It's hard to imagine how we would move to private roads. But I think if you think through the fiscal situations of a lot of our big cities, and you think through the politics of those fiscal situations, where it's probably likely that in some cases, it's too high to raise, or it's too hard politically to raise taxes to cover their debts, and it's politically infeasible to lower the spending, uh, these cities and maybe some states might be placed in a situation where they're going to have to sell off assets that they own. And that might present an opportunity for wise policy people to maybe interject themselves in the process and say, let's sell the roads. But who knows? We can dream. We can dream. I love that you've moved. We've moved beyond who will build the roads to can we sell the roads? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's something that doesn't need to be discussed in a policy report such as I've written. Yeah. But I make one allusion to this when, you know, but the, the libertarian in me, of, of course, just feels a need to make a nod to that ever present challenge. I think I say something like, given that roads are publicly owned and will be for the foreseeable future, because I don't want to take that as the uh, immutable state of affairs either. And to the extent that we can have private alternatives uh, and a, mar a marketplace that enables different forms of competition and transportation, we're going to benefit from it. I would love to see different municipalities take uh, friendly or you know non-friendly, if that's preferable to their populations, approaches here. And let's, um, let's see where uh, and how the, the autonomous technology can, can really thrive. Um, privatizing certain portions of roads would definitely give us a chance to to try some new things out. I think privatize the roads is a good place to leave it, unless you guys have anything else. So, uh, our guest today has been Jordan McGillis from the Manhattan Institute. Jordan, uh, it's been great talking to you and catching up, catching up. And uh, Paige, thank you for your time today. Much appreciated. Thanks, Alex.